Hello, my name is Shireen Jordan and welcome to Tea and Tonic. This podcast is about giving my guests from all different creative industries the chance to tell us about how they got to where they are today, while we both sip a tea or perhaps something a bit stronger with a tonic. It's a chance for those affected by the impact of lockdown, the opportunity to chat, because talking is, as the saying goes, just the tonic. I hope you enjoy it with a beverage in hand. It's Friday, July the 17th, 2020, and my guest today is theatre director Sean Turner from Oxfordshire. Sean trained at East 15 in Alra in London, where he completed a BA Honours in Acting in 2008. Since then, he's found his feet as a respected director in the industry and is currently Associate Director on the West End and UK touring productions of the Olivier Award-winning farce, The Play That Goes Wrong. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome Sean Turner. Hello! Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Yeah, good, thank you. Good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, thank you for agreeing to (laughs) chat. Now, I see you've got a drink there in the background that you just slurped. I do. Yeah, I'm not following the rules here because I'm not really a tea drinker. I'm a coffee drinker. (gasps) So I have a I have a flat white, very uh, homemade flat white. Right. Yeah, I've got an espresso machine, so yeah, I take take coffee quite seriously. So uh, yeah, I just proved myself a flat white. I also have a, a can of tonic on its own, which I might sip later as well. Okay, thank you. In the true spirit. Um, well, I've got a non-alcoholic cedars tonic here. Oh, nice. So um, nice, you know, nice. keeping a level head. Right. So Sean, I know that you direct now. And you've toured the world. We'll come on to that in a moment. But you started as an actor. So where did your yeah. love of acting come from? Oh, I don't know. I think my um, my mum was used to do amateur dramatics um, when we were younger. And she probably she took us into rehearsals a couple of times. I remember her doing a production of Sweet Charity and West Side Story with like an amateur company. And I remember being sat in the rehearsal rooms. Um, and and that being quite a special time, you know, and um, and then going up to the West End with her a couple of times, seeing Jason Donovan do Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, I'm a little that bit envious it. there. I never got to see yeah. Jason Donovan do that. As soon as I as soon as I oh. saw that, and then we we met him at stage door afterwards. That that was it, you know. That was that was the deciding factor. So um, yeah, I guess it was it was always there. It's weird. My sister is a drama teacher as well, like in a secondary school. So we uh, we both got it from somewhere. Um, so. was that was your mum doing it like as amateur dramatics or was that her yeah. profession no 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 just just amateur just um just for fun really which is i don't know that's the best theater sometimes isn't it when when you're just doing it because you love doing it um and yeah i think you know seeing how much fun and how much camaraderie there was in those groups i think was really really important to both of us were you then allowed to pursue that at school and and hone your skill if you like yeah I think so I was really lucky at school I guess like um I had I had really supportive drama teachers throughout um and we were offered opportunities to to do school plays um the height of my acting career was playing Fagin at 16 that was it. That, yeah that was really the best thing I ever did probably which is quite sad <laughs> I think that's amazing I, I pe- peaked at 16 <laughs> Well, obviously, you didn't peak at 16, because then did you study drama at college? Did you do A-levels? Yes, well, yeah, I stayed on and did A-levels, so I did theatre studies at A-level, yeah, which I loved doing, and um, I sort of, to, to the detriment of my other academic education that I spent 
95% of the time in the drama studio um, working on like our final A-level piece, which was going to be the greatest piece of avant-garde theatre ever made, you know? <laughs> and what was it? The Visit by Frigerick Durham, Matt, um, which has just been on at the National. And um, uh, me and uh, George uh, McLean, who was who uh, an actor who was in that A-level piece with me, both got to go and see it at the National, you know, if I don't know, 15, 20 years on from when we'd first looked at that play. So it was magic. It was really nice. Oh, wow. And then you auditioned for drama school uh, and you got in first time. Yeah. No, well, I did. Yeah, I did. Absolutely. I mean, I guess I I think like like everybody going to drama school, I was sort of, I've got to get into to one of the big name schools and do the three year course immediately. And I didn't quite get that. I got, I did get some offers, but um, I decided to go to East 15 and do the foundation course there. It's a year-long course and was just the most incredible year I've ever had in my life, you know. To be honest, more for the parties than the than the training. Okay. But but I was really, you know, in a way I got that out of my system between 18 and 19 and then I was able to focus a little bit more when I actually got into and started doing the three-year course, which was at Alra the following year. You seem quite relaxed and almost playing it down. They're tough places to get into at 17 and 18, especially first time round. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Yeah, I know. At the time, I was uh, I was over the moon. I was completely kind of blown away by it. Um, I still am today. I shouldn't, I shouldn't belittle it. You're right. I mean, did, did the audition process go well? Did you think that you were going to get a place? Did you think, yeah, this feels right, this feels good? Yeah, I think I probably was the opposite at 18. I think I was probably just uh, like thought I was king of the world and total arrogance and didn't expect anything but that I would get in probably. That's uh, <laughs> that's probably the awful truth. Um but yeah, no, I uh, yeah, I did I, I did feel confident. I felt I think I think I felt um I I'd been nurtured at school in such a way that I kind of felt like I was um I felt like I was worthwhile and good. Um, and I guess it's that thing going from being a, a big fish in a small pond to going to drama school where everybody's a big fish or it's it's a very big pond. Um, so, um, yeah, I think I, I, I quickly learned once I got to drama school that I, I wasn't invincible. So you did the three years. And what was that like? Because I hear that drama school can be a roller coaster time and... You could yeah. be built up and, and slammed back down again. And, you know, your your tutors are, are trying to get you ready for the industry when you come out. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that was that was true for sure. It was it was a tough three years and a really, really exciting three years. Um, and I, I think I kind of I changed for the better throughout it. And um, and obviously, you know, I learned an incredible amount about the craft of acting. Um, and about theatre and, uh, you know, the contextual kind of elements of that. Um, and I came away from it by the end of the three years, kind of knowing that I wanted to be in theatre forever and knowing that maybe I hadn't chosen the right part of the theatre that I, that I wanted to be in forever. Um, and maybe that I just, that I, that I wasn't going to be as good as I ever wanted to be, you know, and... I think I, I realised that. That's really interesting you say that, because obviously you studied acting rather than mm. a BA honours in directing. Yeah. So you came out of drama school 
and got got into auditions what what Mm -hmm. was that like did you get an agent quickly did you get you know the job you'd always wanted no (laughs) no I didn't get either uh I um I didn't get an agent coming out of drama school um and um and certainly didn't didn't get the job that I had always wanted. I kind of, you know, I, I grafted and I, I did some things that I, that I really enjoyed and some stuff that I'm proud of um, and uh, took shows up to Edinburgh and did lots of stuff on the fringe, lots of lots of profit share jobs and things. And, and yeah, I quite quickly realized that, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the, the, um, the career that I that I wanted for myself. Um, and wasn't going to become that. It wasn't ever going to be as enjoyable as it was when I was 17 and in the drama studio with George trying to make the world's greatest avant-garde piece of theatre. And why was that? Was that because it's such a tough slog? Um, I just didn't love it anymore, you know? And I was in rehearsals, even in my third year at drama school, I was in rehearsals and I was working with people um, working with directors who I was I was learning so much from and I was really having such a great time creating with and I was looking at things in my own performance and going I know what it is I need to do I know what it is I want to be able to do and I can't achieve it mm. and I was sitting on the outside and watching other people um, in their scenes and in their work and thinking I know how to make this better I know how to tweak this I know what to do to help you out and and so <sighs> Yeah, I was just already kind of having that outside eye and and it was already there. That's know. so interesting. So you were already quite introspective. You said to me when we were chatting that you had a moment when you were in Hamlet. Yeah. That you a bit of an epiphany if you like. Yeah. That you knew yeah. this isn't this isn't for me. This I'm not going to be sitting mm-hmm. McKellen with mm-hmm. the words that you use. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was probably a couple of years after graduating, and I was doing this really magnificent um, production of Hamlet 1606, which was um, the, like the bad quarto Hamlet, is what they call it, it's a shorter version um, of Hamlet. And, and you know, it'd been really beautifully directed by Imogen Bond, who's doing great stuff now. Um, and I, I was in it, and I wasn't enjoying myself, and I wasn't kind of in a I wasn't in a very good place mentally, to be honest. Um, and uh, uh, and all of those things coupled together to a moment on stage that I remember quite clearly, I think on a Sunday matinee, halfway through this performance, playing one role right at the very beginning of Hamlet and one right at the very end and having like an hour and a half in between. I remember very clearly being on the stage and thinking, I have to stop doing this. Like, this is not what I want to be doing anymore. Um, And going away from the end of that production and going through the rest of that show, thinking, thinking about this Um, and going away from the end of that production and feeling like, feeling almost elated, like a weight was lifted a little bit that I thought, actually, no, let's just focus on, uh, on directing. Because I think as soon as I'd got a taste for that, I knew it was what I wanted to be doing. So when did you first get a taste for directing then? I um, I found a play called Sunday Morning at the Centre of the World, um, which is by Louis de Bernier, the guy who wrote Captain Corelli's Mandolin, uh, amongst other things. And it turns out that he lived in Tooting in southwest London for 
a decade. And when he left, he wrote this homage in the style of Dylan Thomas's Under Milk Wood to Tooting, which is where I was living at the time um, and had been living for, for quite some time and, and still do live. Um, and uh, I was fascinated by the place as much as I was by the play. Um, and um, it was something that, that just felt like it was the perfect thing to, to do. And we, in the most beautiful, um, grassroots, naive way, just decided, we're going to put this on. Um, and I think the entire thing cost us about £80. Um, and we uh, took over a beautiful pub, which is actually a, a disused tram shed, um, and um, did this production just for a couple of nights. Um, and I had the most wonderful response and I got to work with these incredible actors and, and I, I, yeah, I was totally out of my depth for the first week or so of rehearsals. But by the end of it, I just felt such a kind of felt so galvanized by the whole process. Um, that I, yeah, I really knew that, uh, I'd, I'd found it. I, I knew it was always there, this part of this thing in theater that I was going to do. Um, and here it was. So, yeah. so this is summer 2009. Is that right? something like that I, I you know a long time ago so you're a year out of drama school and making a living from what you you know what you studied from the industry oh. that you wanted to be in is that fair to say or were you having to kind no. of do other jobs and and yeah no I was I was doing I was doing other work um for for a long time I mean it, it wasn't really until about 2015 or 16 that I stopped doing that stuff and I was working in bars and running bars and general managing um, bars and restaurants and things um, which was you know work that uh, that I loved at the time but really takes it out of you Um, especially if like me you enjoyed or used to enjoy a drink Um, so um, long hours and late nights and um, and abuse of the body Um, and that became for me as much a a part of um, of, of uh, stop stopping doing that work was important for me um as a step towards being where i am now in terms of in terms of doing the work that i'm doing um, but also in terms of my own health so, so you like to party <laughs> i did i used to yeah yeah i did um yeah i haven't i haven't had a drink for six and a half years now so oh, wow that's that's impressive Hence the tonic water on the its tonic own water. Is, it, is it slimline <laughs> Yeah, no, not quite. It's not that bad. It's not body as a temple stuff. It actually is. It actually says it's low calories. I didn't know that. <laughs> I've just ordered my mum some actually on our on our shop for the weekend. Um, I think that's really interesting because um, lots of people, I guess, think that you come out of drama school and it and it happens. And I know it does for some people, yeah. and you can make a living instantly from the industry. Mm. But I think for mm. for many, for the majority, that's not possible, and you have to yeah. subsidise your income with other work as you said sure. you had to do for quite a number of years yeah. so you do the tooting play uh, uh-huh. which you love and it's at the top of the pub and it's a success so your creative juices are flowing at this point what happened next then I met uh well I think maybe I'd already met but a lady called Sarah Goddard who is really quite a brilliant playwright um, and she was taking, she was doing this incredibly ambitious thing of taking 12 plays to the Edinburgh Fringe and taking over an entire venue. Um, and uh, uh, the majority of which she'd written herself. And um, 
she asked me if I would be willing to direct um, one or two of them, and I ended up doing two. Um, and they were both brilliant plays, and we had brilliant casts, and um, and I was really lucky that I got to work with them. Um, uh, both of them transferred to London the following year and, and did little runs in little pub theatres, and, um, and it was great, you know. It, and, but what it meant was that by the time I'd kind of done those few things, I had a I had a little bit of a CV, I had a little bit of a calling card that I could used as a kind of as a springboard to get more hired gun work and get kind of doing stuff but again you know this is all still done on a totally on a profit share scale on a let's do it because we love it scale um and uh yeah very much making work because we loved making that work and 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 hoping that, that one day it would translate to to bigger and better opportunities um which which it has done Mm. um so after that then what happened so I kind of worked and worked and worked and did lots of lovely little jobs and and some stuff that I loved and some stuff that I could quite happily forget um but kept kind of just grafting and just trying to find as many opportunities as I can to to practice my profession Mm -hmm. you know it's a really difficult thing to do so and were you networking um, a lot using social media a lot to try to make new contacts and work with new people that you can create with? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, Twitter is, has always been my best friend in terms of um, that kind of thing, even right up to this last week, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. But um, Twitter has is, is always kind of opened up doors for me and opened up opportunities and, and meeting new people. And yeah, I mean, I guess I was, I used to do a lot more in-person networking than I do now, but um that's because I wanted to go out and party with them. But um, so we, uh, yeah, we do a little, uh, I, I do do less of that now. Um, but yeah, it's an important part of the job. Um, and I wouldn't have had half the opportunities that I had if I, if I hadn't have been doing that kind of stuff. In 2012, you were nominated for Best Director uh-huh. for the Off West End Awards. Yeah. What was that for? <laughs> so that was for the one of the Edinburgh shows that came back and, and, and went to um, went to the Camden etc. Theatre, um, and you know, I, 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 it was not me at all. I, yeah, it was it was a beautiful play, and I had three incredible actors, and I literally put them on stage on three spotlights and three chairs and got them to speak, and like that was the extent of my directing on that show. I mean, I'm simplifying of course we worked really hard on all of the text and things but but there was definitely work at that time that uh, that I was more proud of as a director you know that had more of a director's stamp on it um but yeah it was I was just blessed with a really wonderful piece of work there have you ever had a text and thought I I can't I just I don't know where to start I can't unravel this I can't unpick it I don't know how I'm going to direct I mean, yeah, I get, yeah, you get those. I nowadays I don't choose to direct them, um, which is, you know, as something that I eventually learned that you don't have to say yes to everything, and um, even if that means that you spend a little bit less time working than perhaps you'd feel comfortable with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've I worked on I worked on Pinter uh, twice, um, once uh, a play called Ashes to Ashes, and once on the Dumbwaiter. Um, the dumbwaiter uh, I, was 
wasn't I failed it. I failed the play, you know. Um, I know I did, and I'd love to have another crack at it. Um, and Ashes to Ashes took more out of me and was really difficult. Um, and I think, you know, I just I spent so long trying to understand it. That's as a director, like I I want to tear a play apart and understand every single word of it so that I can then translate that into into what I want to show on stage and and of course with with Pinter you can't do that you just kind of have to accept that it is what it is what's on the page is what's on the page and that's what you've got to play and you can't go searching for hidden meanings and truths too much because you just end up tearing yourself to pieces Mm. um once I realized that it was a I was then able to kind of free up and and actually I was really proud of Ashes to Ashes in the end. I guess that's all part of your your path of of learning and understanding how you are as a director and in your creative side and you know we all do things that we think oh I would have done that in a different way you know looking back. Of course of course. That's life isn't it and aging. Definitely I mean everything that I've ever made I think if I looked back at it today I'd I do things differently. Every single time I go to a closing night, I have a sudden realisation of, ah, that's how I should have done it. (laughs) And it's just too late. That's probably what makes you so good at what you do, because you have such self-awareness and you're so alert to different possibilities. I hope so. (laughs) I try to be. I try to be. So we get to 2016... And yeah. I don't know how you did this, but you were responsible for unearthing the script of playwright Arthur Miller's first play, No Villain. Yeah. First of all, how on earth did you discover that? Um, I I was reading his autobiography, Time Bends, which is a brilliant, brilliant book if you've never read it, um, and came across this section where he talks about his first play um, that he wrote when he was at university at the university of michigan um and i thought that i'd read everything that arthur miller had ever written you know i thought i'd read letters and diaries and books and i thought that i'd pretty much read everything and then uh, so it bugged me that i hadn't read no villain or come across it so i started searching for it um and uh, i got in touch with miller's agents um who said we don't know what you're talking about and um his estate um, and his, his daughter Rebecca Miller and um, and they said well yeah we've heard of it but we'd, we've never seen a script we don't we don't know what it is um, but they gave me their blessing to to search it out um, and I so I, I just just started researching and doing some doing some work on that um, and I was um, able to, to discover in luckily in the University of Michigan archives they had a copy of his original text, his original handwritten text with uh, pencil notes all over it. And it was the most incredible thing. So uh, I, I read it with trepidation thinking, oh no, what if it's, what if it's terrible? Or what if it's not, not what I want it to be? And it was brilliant. It was just, you know, immediately the hand of Arthur Miller was on it. It felt like felt like every Miller play I'd ever written, but in embryo, you know, he was starting to discover the kind of things he wanted to write about and the kind of playwright he wanted to be. And in a way, there's a prototype, um, Willie Lohman in there, and there's all these astonishing characters. And, and it's about a father and sons, which is obviously the classic Miller play, um, and moral questions. Um, 
and and so I then I then asked the estate whether it might be possible for me to put it on, and they thought about it for a very long time because obviously there was a reason that Miller hadn't put it on during his lifetime. There's a couple of reasons for that. I think one, he couldn't afford to do it at that time when he was. Uh, when he wrote the play and two it's the most autobiographical thing that he ever wrote um and i think that he was worried that he would upset his family um if they were if they were still alive to to see it um it doesn't it doesn't necessarily paint um particularly his father in a in a very nice light um so we uh, eventually um were able to to put this show on and and i was able to self-fund it and and make it all happen um, from the beginning right through to production. And and, we were, and I was able to do a world premiere of my hero's work 10 years after he died. It's um, It really is something that, that will probably never be topped. Um, and you put this on at the old Red Lion? Yeah, we did. We did it in, in a, this little pub in Islington in a 50-seat theatre because... Um, well because one that's what we could afford and two um we thought that that's probably what miller would have done if he could have afforded to do it it would have been somewhere like that and the play kind of um wanted to be performed in that way in a small space and 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 again i was lucky to have just the most incredible team on that show it was just one of those one of those shows where the entire creative team are just all in lockstep and just all understand it did you cast it as well? Yeah, yeah, everything. So, um, and yeah, just, just, just was so lucky to find this incredible cast who were all so committed to the project, and we all kind of understood what a powerful thing it was that we had. Um, it was, you know, a couple of days after we announced it that the press had just gone crazy. It was everywhere. I was getting phone calls from the New York Times in the middle of the night, and you know, all of this incredible stuff was happening, and, and we sold out every single show and had queues around the block at the old red lion and just had the most magical kind of feeling. The press night for that show was, was extraordinary. You know, we had, I think three artistic directors of the national theater on the front row in this tiny little pub <laughs> over the years. Um, it was just yeah, extraordinary. And how many performances of it did you do at the old red lion? Um, I don't know. It ran for about five weeks. So um, eight shows a week. I don't know about 40 odd. This was the point where your life was starting to change now. Yeah, things had things had really kind of um yeah, it was it was an interesting time. I, the reason that I was able to do that show, I think is worth saying, is the reason that I was able to to put that show on the way I wanted to put it on rather than giving it to a producer was um, my father had just passed away just before mm. this had happened. And, and and so it had left me with a tiny little pot of money, with a little bit of money that allowed me to, to make this thing happen. So not only was it this incredibly special play about fathers and sons and this incredible opportunity to, to make this play happen, it was also like this extraordinary gift from my father, from, you know, from beyond um and uh and so it was yeah it was a really really special thing to be able to achieve and it turned my life around it really did i'm so um, sorry to hear that hey no it's it's not a thing to be sorry about at all though, you know there aren't many people that get calls from the new york times <laughs> you know regardless of what kind of how big their work is yeah. in their life yeah 
yeah, it's pretty. It's, it was a it was a pretty crazy few days because I'm in the middle of trying to rehearse this play and getting phone calls left, right, and centre, and PR teams saying you've got to come out and do this for ten minutes. You've got to come and talk to BBC. You've got to come and do this or whatever it was. And great, it was a really really exciting time. And you know, obviously, it was a big story. I think I'd never I hadn't really realised how big a story it was going to be until it until it happened. Um, and yeah, and yeah, and then the the show was so well received as well. You know, people really really enjoyed it. It was reviewed very well, and and we got to take it to the West End. So yeah, we'll come on to that in a moment. How long then from sure. when you unearthed it to opening night? I think I think it was. Uh, oh, I'm, I have such a bad memory. I think it was about nine months, something like that, um, from from finding it to to getting it to opening night on the stage so wow and do you remember how you felt on opening night i mean terrified utterly terrified (laughs) i felt such a weight of responsibility because i felt like you know arthur was was watching over us on that day you know and i'm not i'm not really i'm not like that but um but it really felt like i had to i had to do this play justice i had to do the hype justice and i had to do the the opportunity that had been dealt to me justice um and i was so nervous and we had terrible problems you know with the, with the set on that first night it was things that that just didn't make any sense we we it was set in a coat factory or some of it was set in a coat factory and we'd put a load of coats inside paper um, bags like they were in, come out of the dry cleaners they were all in paper bags and they just made the most horrific noise the entire night <laughs> just just constant rustling of paper um and uh we swiftly changed that the following day um, but yeah it was great the play no villain did that not turn into one of arthur miller's more well-known plays that we all know well i think that they're all kind of they're all embryo for me i think that this was the very beginning of him writing death of the salesman mm-hmm. um but it, but there's also there's elements of all my sons in there, um, and and you know to an extent there's elements of the crucible in there. Um, but it's, it's certainly it's um, it's the the kind of the, the genesis of all of the work that he did in his life is all there. All of the the arguments that he would have with himself in plays, all the kind of moral questions that he asked of his audience were all so clearly. Um, there within the the 70 odd pages of that text that five weeks I bet for you was just super exciting and super and fulfilling yeah and then you transfer to Trafalgar Studios too yeah yeah hello how did that you know (laughs) did someone come and just offer it to you or yeah I mean I think we were kind of we we were hopeful right from the start because we knew what we had and we knew we'd, you know, we knew how quickly we'd managed to sell out the tickets at the old red lion and things. And, and we felt that, that 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 was the right thing to do was to, to, to then take it somewhere where we could show it to a larger audience because we just, we just couldn't fit people in to come and see it. Um, and again, you know, the conversations that we had with, with Patrick Herald, who looks after Miller's estate were about, you know, should this go to a really, large theatre and and neither of us thought that that was the sensible thing to do it had to stay kind of um, it had to stay compact and and 
and close, you know. Um, and so we decided that Draft 2 was the perfect place for it. Because uh, it's still an intimate venue, isn't it, Trafalgar still Studios? Really, that's the word I was looking for a moment ago, intimate, yeah. Um, it's really intimate. Yeah, you still feel like you're on top of the action. And in a way, it's it's not dissimilar to the Odd Red Iron, but obviously you're, you're in the heart of Trafalgar Square. So. This is the time you said to me, it changed everything for you. Yeah, yeah, I think so. By that point, you know, I think everything was starting to to kind of all of the things that I'd hoped were starting to be realised and um, I'd um, signed with my agents at United and and we were um, starting to sort of talk about the future and, and, and talk about where things would go and, um, and I was excited, you know, I was really excited about, about the opportunities that, were, that would hopefully come my way out of that and and they did, you know, and, and no villain still um, is a calling card for me. Um it's the question that people always want to ask and want to have that conversation about when you go in for an interview or how did you do that? What's this all about? Tell me about the play. Um, what so, yeah, a great conversation to keep having. It's though, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's <fun>. <laughs> <laughs> did you feel at this point as well that, you know, creatively and personally you were where you wanted to be, that it felt right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Things were, things were really starting to fall into place. Um, uh, personally and emotionally and and in, in my work um, we said earlier about looking back on a piece and thinking I'd change that and I think yeah I would change lots of things with no villain but I still look back at it and in my mind it's it's still a production that I'm immensely proud of um, and it, and it was that combination of of, of elements of, of having the most incredible lighting designer and, and set and costume designer and, and producer and, and cast and just having that whole team. And it felt for me like going back to those days right at the very beginning where we were making it because we loved making it. Mm. And it wasn't about getting to the next step of the career ladder, you know, mm. even though it was the thing that did that for me. It was it was it was about doing justice to this extraordinary piece of work. Currently, you are associate director on The Play That Goes Wrong. Yeah. Hilarious. I've seen it. I laughed all night. Thanks. It came to the Mayflower <laughs> in Southampton in 2017. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just yeah. hilarious, physical, fast, kind of commedia dell'arte mm. style. Mm-hmm. Just brilliant. This is by uh, Henry Lewis, Henry Shields and Jonathan Sayer from the Mischief Theatre Company. And it has been on at the Duchess Theatre in London until lockdown. Yeah. But you've toured all over the world with this, Sean, haven't you? I have, yeah. Yeah, I've been really lucky. You know, this this is one of the things that kind of quickly, directly came out of my relationship with Dan at United and um, from No Villain. I was, you know, went for an interview with these extraordinary creators at Mischief Theatre, who, people who I'd admired and, and idolised for, for years, having seen them do their improvisation shows at the fringe and things and and yeah i was so so kind of overwhelmed to get to work with them um i went for the interview and um and they said oh by the way did we, we tell you that uh we, we want you to go and do the australian production of the show if you get this and I, no but yes <laughs> yes i'll do that um and so i uh i i did one rehearsal process with Mark Bell, who's the original director, um, with the new touring cast. And I watched him and I took furious, furious notes and I tried to learn everything I could about the show. And then they sent me to Melbourne for six weeks to, to do the the Australian production of the show. 
which toured all the way around Australia. And since then, I've been to Moscow, to uh, South Korea, to Spain. Um, and I'm about to go out back out to Spain in September to put the show back up. Um, and just yeah, been to been to all these incredible places and, and and met so many amazing people through this show, and brought laughter to so many places. And that really is the the best thing about this show. You just every night, you know, you, you I, I have to see the show quite a lot in mm-hmm. my job, um, and you would think that it would get boring, and it just doesn't because it just takes one child who is just roaring with laughter throughout the entire night or one 85-year-old lady who's roaring with laughter throughout the whole night to make you realise just what an incredible thing it is that, that they've created and and what a special thing it is. Um, yeah, for, for those that haven't seen it, it's about the Cornley Polytechnic Drama Society who perform a classic 1920s murder mystery and it is just, from start to finish, chaos, yeah. intended chaos. <laughs> yeah, really intended, and really, really carefully choreographed. It's so physical. How do you go about directing that? Uh, with pinpoint accuracy, <laughs> you know, it's um, it's amazing, really, because it it is, as I say, it is incredibly highly choreographed and we have to be very careful about all kinds of things because obviously uh, there's there's danger within what we do mm-hmm. um and we work very hard to rehearse with uh, with all the cast to make sure that they're safe um and looked after especially when you're doing an eight show a week um but also within that there's a real freedom way more than a lot of long-running west end shows in that the show is 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 based on commedia dell'arte on clowning um, and so each new actor that takes on those new roles, and I've worked with so many casts now and double figures of casts, and um, everybody brings something totally fresh and totally new to that performance. And in a way, the show changes so much every night as well because the audience are such a big part of the show and what, what they the way that they respond to it really kind of tells us what needs to be done and um yeah it's it's just a joy to work on it really is was it daunting taking on such a big project yeah i think for me the first time that i did it went so when i went out to australia and did this show i was it was daunting because i you know previous to that i probably the biggest theater i'd worked in is a couple of hundred seats um and with a team of you know seven or eight people plus cast um where and then i was suddenly in the middle of melbourne in this 900 seat theater um working on this this show with you know 20 30 people working on it and um uh, yeah it, it was a baptism of fire but in the most incredible way you know i just had to just jump in and i knew the show and i understood the show and i felt a real complicity with the show um and so it it came easy, you know, it, it, it seemed to work. You were living your best life at this point, right? <laughs> um, I, guess so, yeah. I haven't met anybody that hasn't loved the show. All the things that go wrong. There were times when I was thinking, did that really go wrong? Or was that meant to go wrong? It's just high octane, isn't it? The whole way through. It is. It is. And that's our biggest job, really in the show is, you know, can, how many times can we make the audience believe that something's actually gone wrong? That's the key. 
you know, um, and playing it straight, not playing it for laughs. The idea is that these guys want it to go right so badly. And if the audience don't care about them and, and want it to go right for them, then we we lose them and then they, and then it is just people falling about and being silly you know but if if people are really engaging with the story and engaging with the characters then it, it then it's brilliant it's really it really is i take my hat off to all of you because it's a show that has done really well really quite quickly mm-hmm. when you think of the origins of yeah. the trio and mischief theater and the improvisation yeah. group it's been in the west end what six years now and it's toured yeah. the world. I think it was written in about 2012. That is yeah. extraordinary. It's incredible. I mean, it's one of the true great Cinderella success stories of the West End. Um, and uh, Kenny Wax, who's the producer, and Mark Bentley, they seem to have a knack for finding those kind of things. Six, the musical, which is, uh, is in the West End now, is another one of those great, like, Edinburgh Fringe, little shows with big heart, big imaginations. And um, uh, yeah, it's it's a great thing to be able to work on and something that we're all very proud of. And it really feels like a, like a family, you know. It's such a clever genre. Sean, so that was up and running until obviously lockdown happened. Yeah. Do you know when the show's going to come back again? I don't know. I don't know. We're speaking today on the day that Boris Johnson has just decided that theatres can uh, reopen on August the 1st. Um, I don't honestly know whether that's a viable option for any theatre, in the, particularly in the West End, um, mm. but but all over the place. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I mean, with social distancing in, in, in place, it, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be a very difficult few months years to come for for theatre and thank goodness for for the package of support that has been announced recently though um i don't know is the honest answer but Mm. we'll be back as soon as we can i'm sure fingers crossed Um, we're all waiting for you know i think the world's gonna need laughter like the flavor goes wrong you can really feel like you can just let go a little bit for a couple of hours absolutely and we all need that um Mm. so how has lockdown been for you then the last three months Mm, it's been all right actually um (laughs) i uh obviously as soon as soon as it was announced and as soon as the theaters closed it was it was a worrying time for everybody um and uh but i i've been for the past year and a bit i've been working on a book i've been writing a a young adult fantasy novel (laughs) um which is something i never thought i'd do but um but i've been working on it for a really long time and i've been really enjoying working on it and it it's given me a reason to get up every morning um, and I've been so glad of that. And uh, I, so I finished it back um, in May and I'm now working on draft two and, and being able to edit it and working my way through it. So, wow. yeah, I don't know what I would have done without it, to be honest. Congratulations. Do we have a Thanks. date when it might come out? Are you going to self-publish? No. Do you have a publisher? No, I'd like to. I'd like to find a publisher. I would, I, I'll try. Um, but I don't know. Who knows whether it's any good or not? I've not really shown it to anybody apart from my partner. Okay. Um, I get one more draft down, and then I'll uh, I'll be I'll be starting to send it out. And if if nobody wants it, then I'll self publish it and, and force it upon my friends. And does it have a title yet? Uh, no, well, no, not really. No, it's it's got a, it's gone through a few different iterations. Something like the Legend of the Confidant, mm-hmm. but uh, like it but probably and- not that. And this is for teenagers. Yeah, it's it's yeah, young adults is is the genre I'd say. 
it's about a 14 year old girl who is kind of discovering who she is um so yeah i guess it's gonna appeal to to that kind of age range Ooh, but equally space. i hope it, it, it appeals to adults as well but yeah well when it's a bestseller sean <laughs> i'll say i spoke to him yeah, um, well i'd be very happy if that happens <laughs> now you have been a real busy bee this week on social media trying to sort out a place for all of us to go that is safe mm. and outdoors and yeah. to allow people in the industry to get creative again some open air theater and a bit of a festival yeah. happening in august yeah which we just launched this morning in fact um to not quite as much fanfare as i'd hoped because boris johnson stole our thunder by announcing that theaters could open again um, but we, uh, yeah, so I've been curating um, and creating this festival called the New Normal Festival, which is going to be happening in Wandsworth in this beautiful um, grade two listed building called the Royal Victoria Patriotic Building. And I, yeah, I put a tweet out, just like we were saying earlier, Twitter's my friend. I put a tweet out saying, hey, we're allowed to do open air theatre now. Has anybody got any shows that they'd like to do? I've got a space. And um and the creative industry just went crazy. And I had such an amazing response from people. And I've now managed to schedule and program a month-long festival of arts with different events happening every single night through August um, and some incredible acts taking part. And, yeah, hopefully just to, to give people a, a bit of a boost and, and an opportunity to, to see some live performance again and, and feel comfortable in, in a space out, outdoors where they can come and enjoy that um, safely. This is amazing what you're doing. And you got this venue for free. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an old friend of mine, basically. It's one of, one of those restaurants that I was talking about that I used to run years and years ago has a big courtyard and they, um, they, they do a lot of weddings and things and they've had everything cancelled for this summer like everybody has. And so he got in touch with me and said, hey, I've got this courtyard. What should we do? Um, and so, yeah, so we, we, we tried, to, tried to do our best and, you know, it's, it's really helping out the artists involved as well as helping out the the bar and restaurant hopefully people will come and buy drinks and food and have some barbecues and have a great time it looks amazing i checked out the website earlier and you've got so many different artists and comedians and improv groups and shakespeare groups and it's all going on some real talented minds are going to be there Um, something to keep everyone busy in august yeah this sounds to me like your producer side bubbling away yeah, a little bit, I guess. I mean, uh, I just, I just took the bull by the horns and wanted to do it, and you know, and I, I yeah, I could easily have, have, uh, have called a producer and, and got them involved and got them to do it and taken our time and thought about it all. But sometimes you just got to jump in at the deep end, haven't you, and just, just go for it. Um, and it felt to me like I just had to do it there and then. Um, and to be honest, I put that tweet out thinking. Uh, you know one or two people will get back to me um and you know it's been like retweeted a thousand times or something and and we've had so many responses so so it it happened by accident really more than anything else and um yeah it's uh, but it has been a crazy week (laughs) it really has well you've just created like a mini edinburgh fringe for wandsworth basically yeah uh we need a few more people to be doing that in in different pockets around the uk we'll all be happy during august yeah um how do you relax then amongst your busy life of writing and producing and directing and, and unearthing 
hidden texts? I am um, sports. I like watching sports. Um, so I'm a big Formula One fan and mm. NFL and American football um, and things. So I like to I like to relax doing that. I like to read a lot. Um, cooking. I've been doing a lot more cooking mm. recently. Um, and really recently running. Me and my partner have been running every day and um, I've, been, I've been really enjoying it. So, uh, yeah, a few different things. But I would say the, the, the kind of running throughout all of all of that has been always kind of reading and, and that's, that's kept me happy. But uh, and the other thing that, that is very difficult for me to do is to read a book without thinking about how I could adapt it to the stage. <laughs> so um, that tends to happen. I tend to get sidelined thinking, hmm, how can we do this? <laughs> There'll be all these uh, projects for you. Then next year, you'll be making a little yeah, list. Definitely, definitely. And so, what's your pièce de résistance in the kitchen then? If you've been doing some lockdown cooking? Oh, I don't know. Pièce de résistance. Um, we've made a couple of good pies recently. Uh, short cross pastry pies. I, I just like it, liking doing different things. I um, I'm not one to do the same recipe a lot. Um, I, I'll sort of try something and then try something else although the, actually the one thing that i that i do pride myself on is a pomodoro sauce i can make a pretty good tomato sauce just tomato and basil sauce that takes like a good it. couple of hours to make yeah i enjoy that we, we like pasta amazing and who would you say has been the biggest influence on you um i don't know i think i've had so many different influences over time um i think arthur miller has been a big one like as a as a theatre maker and also as a human being, I find him to be such a interesting, morally upright chap. Um, and, uh, and that's, yeah, that's important to me. Um, but in terms of theatre makers and things, and people like Nick Heitner, I've always had so much respect for and all the work that he's created. Um, Peter Brook was the big one that, when I was growing up and, wanting to, to make all that avant-garde theatre. I was talking about Peter Brook was the, the man that was the oracle for me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So many different people over so many different times. <laughs> Sean, you've been just brilliant. Thank you so much great. for giving it's, me... I feel like I've unloaded a bit. It's been <laughs> nice. <laughs> Can I plug the website for the uh, tickets for the, for the New Normal? So the festival is called The New Normal... Uh, festival and it's taking place in Wandsworth and the web address is www.newnormalfest.co.uk um, and there's some really amazing acts there so book some tickets if you can come down and say hi. That was Sean Turner from Oxfordshire, Associate Director on the West End and UK touring productions of The Play That Goes Wrong. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes from your preferred podcast provider and follow me on Twitter at Shireen Jordan and on Instagram at Shireen R. Jordan.